again this evening. You know, must think me and uh, Daniel are working together, don't we? <laughs> he has a nicer way of telling the story than I did, um, but I, I thought it was so neat how he, he brought it out and, and how he, he discussed the whole thing about this being our story and how it's so precious, and it, it, it really is. I want to continue to uh, build on that there, and I, I should have got him to talk before I did the first night, but uh, yeah, we are in the midst of this story, and the beauty of this is that God made up this story even before the foundations of the world, right? Our story was made even before we were born. It was made perfectly. Everything that happened from since Jesus, before the creation of this world, is is the perfect story. I mean, it, it, you know, if you're thinking about a novel or a story that would that, that's out there, is is there's just no story that is better than that, right? I mean, there's nobody in the world that can develop a better story than what God did, and he did it the best way possible. It's been done perfectly. God didn't make any mistakes in this story, and we are the characters in this story, right? <laughs> and I thought that was so neat how he said uh, also about the groaning part that we talked about last night, and our bodies uh, are, are groaning and looking forward to that ultimate climax, right? And I get the privilege of talking about that ultimate climax, and uh, yeah. I, I don't know if I'll get into that a whole lot tonight, but I think the beauty of that ultimate climax is how Jesus has that story developing on how he works with the nation of Israel and with the church and, and how this is a church, we're part of the church, and, and uh, how the, the, it seems like the, um, the main part of the story right now is about the church right now, that God's going to be bringing the story of Israel in with us, and it's going to come to an ultimate climax at the end where the nation of Israel and the church all going to come together at the end, and uh, everything will be made again, right? right? I can't hardly wait. I, 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 I get excited about that there. All right, I, as I was studying today, again, um, looking at some of these things here and some of the questions that we've been asked, and, and I, I, think that I, I think I think I'm, I'm going to put the new earth and the new, uh, the new heavens probably at this point right here. I was kind of thinking maybe it would be here, but I think our ultimate new earth and new heavens will be kind of in here. But I'll talk about that some more. So g give me some questions for maybe the last night. Thursday night that you want to discuss, and uh, maybe we can uh, talk about that there. Tonight I told you I'm going to talk about the concept of replacement theology, which I think is is, is so important, and, and I don't, um, I'm really surprised that uh, there's so much of the Christian church that actually believes in this replacement theology thought of, uh, I, I just don't like the idea of, of, of God thinking that that he made the nation of Israel and he started out with this plan of having the nation of Israel and they just messed up so bad that God had to come up with a better plan and he used an, uh, the church now to replace the nation of Israel. That, that just does not feel right to the story, does it? You know, why would God have to mess up his story? It got messed up in the middle of a story. It got messed up and he had to change and had to replace Israel with the church. That, that just just doesn't seem, and I think when we start thinking that way, it just messes up who God is. You know, if we know God has a perfect plan, does everything exactly right the first time, doesn't have to change, I, I don't see how you can believe in this replacement theology. So I, I, I think this is very um, important in, in our study of, of, uh, of prophecy and even our, uh, where we're at now 
And, and I, I think it's, it's been shocking to me as I've, I've read on how the church kind of came up with this replacement theology. I, I mean, I, I, I stand against replacement theology more now than I ever have. It's, it's just the, the whole idea of the people that came out from that. And so we want to talk about some of those things uh, here tonight. What is replacement theology? Um, probably the, one of the better def definitions I have here is Israel or the Jewish people in the land has been replaced by the Christian church. Church is the historical continuation of Israel. So in other words, Israel, God's kind of done with Israel now, and now we're going to continue on where it's going to be the church into the rest of history. Uh, Israel is, has done its thing. Thank you, Israel, for giving us our Savior. But the church will take care of that, and we'll go on into eternity. And, uh, uh, yeah, if you want to be part of the church, good, but Israel's done. And so uh, that's how the people would kind of describe replacement theology. Another one, the Jewish people are now no longer a chosen people. And they would like to say with replacement <coughs> theology, the chosen people has now been given to the church. And I, I'm, I'm not saying that, that Israel is more important than the church. I, I think the church is the bride. You know, what's better than being the bride of Jesus Christ? That, that, that's that's uh, one of the best places. But I think Israel is still the apple of God's eye. And I don't think we can ever, uh, should never change that. But with replacement theology, they have thought now that the Jewish people are no longer the chosen people, that now the church is. Since Pentecost of Acts 2, the term Israel, as found in the Bible, now refers to the church. So every time you hear about the, the, the talk about the church in the New Testament, I mean about Israel, when it mentions Israel, so for some reason the people of replacement theology want to say, well, that's implying the church. It's not. It's been mentioned 77 times in the New Testament. Uh, the Israel is, is talked about, and it is not implying the church. And there might be some parallels, but uh, um, that's what the people of replacement theology would say. They also say that the promises, the covenants, the blessings ascribed to Israel in the Bible have been taken away from the Jews and given to the church. And uh, I, that's, I think, a serious mistake. <laughs> Because what do we do with the Old Testament promises that say, you know, if you do everything right, God's going to bless you, and uh, things are going to go your way. You know, that's what was that the prosperity gospel, right? So if you want to, you know, if, if we want to use the promises that God gave to the nation of Israel and now refer to them the church, and the, the popular Second um, Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people will, how does that verse go there? If my people will call my name and humble themselves and, and, and pray, I will heal their land. You know, it's a nice verse, but I, I, I have a little problem with putting that with us as a church. So if we humble ourselves and pray, God will heal the nation of the United States and we will become a Christian nation again. How nice would that be? No, that's not the intention. That's spoken to the nation of Israel. I think humbling ourselves and praying, healing will come but not to our land. I mean, the church is stranger to this land. So, you know, see how you, when, when you find some of our, uh, our brothers and things that are trying to take some of those Old Testament promises to Israel, we're trying to put it into the church. It just doesn't quite fit quite right, right? And that's what I don't like about um, the replacement theology. Who believes in this? Roman Catholics, United Methodists, Evangelical Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopal, Greek Orthodox, 
United Church of Christ, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Islam. And I added a couple here, and many Mennonite churches, and quite a few Beachy churches. So it's, it's, it's close. And I don't want to be condemning towards our brothers and our friends in other areas, and I know there's some um, people in our church that I'm leaning to in this. So I'm not, I, I don't, I'm going to be straightforward in what I believe. I'm going to not take an apology for what I believe, but at the same time, <laughs> we know what it's done to the Beachy churches. There's been some disagreements among the Beachy people, and I, I don't think it's, it's um, a place where we don't like our brothers that don't believe in it. But I think as we go down over some of these things, we can see how some of this thought can affect our whole worldview and can negatively affect it. So hopefully by the time I'm done with this, most of you will stand stronger with me here on the air of Replacing Theology, which is my uh, title here today. Where did this idea come from? Back in, um, soon after Jesus was on this earth and the early church started, there was a rapid acceptance of Christianity among the Gentiles, and that led to an early conflict between the church and the synagogue. You know, think about it. You know, Jesus, Paul used to go in the synagogues. I was in Capernaum where the disciples, I actually saw the ruins of the synagogue that was in the area where Peter and James and those were there. So, you know, that was kind of the place that Peter talked at, Paul talked at, Jesus talked in the synagogues, right? So then we have, we have this, a lot of the uh, early people in, in, in uh, the early church were about all Jewish. The Bible was written by what? All Jewish, is that correct? Probably. Some people say maybe Luke was Gentile. But our Bible is probably written by all Jewish writers. Um, Jesus Christ was Jew. Our apostles were all Jewish. So a lot of this, a lot of our early church was a, was a, um, a group of a lot of Jewish people coming together. And, and soon after that, which I think is great, I'm a Gentile, so I, I think it's great that the Gentiles have been included. But because of the, of the Gentile, the gospel being spread to the Gentile nations, I, I, I think a lot of the Jewish um, beliefs kind of got pushed back and maybe even knocked down, and we're going to see on how that happened, and maybe wrongly so. Many Gentile Christians interpreted the structure of the temple in Jerusalem as a sign that God had abandoned Judaism and given the Gentiles freedom to develop their own Christian theology. This is probably where it started to go off a little bit on the wrong note. When Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus in what, 77 AD? Is that correct? Is that number right? I think 70 70. some. 70, is it 70? Okay, not 77, 70 AD. I mean, he made a complete. Jesus is right when he said, no, no rock is going to be on, no, no rock is going to be on top of each other. I mean, he destroyed our Jerusalem completely. I mean, he wanted to. He wanted, he wanted to make sure that no Jewish people ever come back there and make that their homeland and make that their religion. He destroyed it completely. I mean, I, I used to always think I was studying that the Wailing Wall was actually the original wall that was uh, there in Jesus' times. No, that's not the original wall. That was actually built, I think, in 400 A.D. or something like that. There. So there really is nothing in Jerusalem that is there when Jesus was there. I mean, it, it, it was wiped out clean. It was wiped out. 
And so a lot of the Christians interpreted that, that the destruction that Jesus actually predicted was going to happen. You know, this is a sign now that we're wiping ourselves complete of anything Jewish, anything of a temple. And in a point, I think that was kind of good. You know, I, I, think, I think it did push the, um, the early church to realize, well, all right, we can't just allow it to go to the temple. It's more than just the temple. And the tabernacle, our worship has to be pushed out from outside of that. So it, it prevented that kind of that central place, you know, like the Muslims have Mecca. You know, that's a holy place. If you want to really be a spiritual Christian, you've got to go to Mecca. And so it, it kind of forced the Christians that, no, we're not going to just go back to Jerusalem to the temple to do our worship. We have to do it other places. But at the same time, I think it unfairly um, made the Jewish faith and the Jewish customs and the Jewish feasts and things like that um, look to the Gentile Christians in particular that we need to wipe everything out Jewish. You know, we're going to start all over. That we're going to replace everything Jewish and we're going to come up with our new ideas, you know, like sometimes when you start another church, so, you know, it would be nice to start another church, maybe I could do my ideas. And, and, and that's maybe a little bit how some of the early Gentile Christians thinking came after the destruction of the temple. And any comments on this or questions you, you uh, uh, open up and speak about, it, let me know. The Bible now was being interpreted through a Greek mindset rather than a Jewish mindset. And all the, I mean, there were still Jewish Christians, but overall it was, seems like the growing Christian group was more out by the Greeks, and especially up into Turkey and, 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 and a lot of the Greeks and the Gentiles. And we kind of had, the churches started kind of having this Greek and, and this Gentile mindset. And so what did they do with that uh, mindset? They started uh, replacing the, the feasts and replacing it with Christian holidays um, we replaced the synagogues with churches. A lot of the early churches were built uh, at that time, and they, they, the synagogues were kind of all wiped out, and they changed their worship. And I, and I, I'm not sure where to go with this here completely. When the Sabbath was changed to Sunday, some people would say well, it had been done early in the early church. Um, a lot of the writings that I'm kind of starting to say it might have happened more like after 70 A.D. The disciples maybe didn't worship on Sundays. Um, I'm not sure, but anyhow, it was more of a, you know, the, the Greeks and the Gentiles now say, oh, Sunday's our worship day, and Jewish worship day is on Saturdays, and so now they kind of had that, that, that anti-Sedonism thing started setting up, you know, well, if you want to worship on Saturdays, that's fine, and we still kind of have <laughs> that argument now, some people want to worship Saturdays, and, and some people want to worship Sundays, can you imagine how much that was more so back in the early church areas, you know, I, I imagine there were some Jewish people that hung on to the the Saturday thing, and maybe they were right, maybe that was all right. Uh, some of the Gentiles probably thought, well, I, I think we should have church on Sundays, and Jesus, Jesus didn't tell us to change the Sundays. And so you kind of had that argument, and, and it seems like the Gentiles were kind of winning, starting to win out in some of these, um, these I ideas. And then comes Constantine. Let me read some of the, the uh, early forefathers that we... Um, read a lot of. Then, then comes Constantine about AD 300. Actually, actually let me go before that. Let's go with uh, Augustine uh, or uh, Justin Martyr. I think it was one of the first ones that came out and uh, where do I have his quote? I don't know if I have that here. But Augustine, actually I think Augustine came out first. Let me read here. Um, Once Christianity and Judaism began to take a separate path the chasm became wider and wider. Judaism was considered a legal religion 
under Roman law, while Christianity, a new religion, was illegal. As Christianity grew, the Romans tried to suppress it. So first of all, you know, the Romans tried to get rid of the Christian, new, the new faith of Christianity. They let the Jews, Jews be there. They, that was okay. You know, they didn't really like the Jewish, but it was a recognized religion that the Roman government kind of allowed to happen. And then they started suppressing the Christians. In an attempt to alleviate this persecution, Christian apologists tried in vain to convince Rome that Christianity was an extension of Judaism, which is kind of true. You know, they, they said, Rome, you know, why isn't it okay for us Christians? Why are you persecuting us Christians? You know, like Nero did and, and killed Paul and all those. You know, we, we're just kind of an extension of the Jewish religion. But no, Nero and the nation of Rome was, uh, was convinced that that was a bad thing and they tried to get rid of the Christians. However, Rome was not convinced. The resulting persecution and frustration of the Christians bred an animosity towards the Jewish community, which was free to worship without persecution. Later, when the church became the religion of the state, it would pass laws against the Jews in retribution, which is sad. The, the, the Christians, in a sense, kind of got jealous at the Jews. Oh, you can worship freely. And we were persecuted all these years. That's not really fair. We, we, that, you know. And so what happened when Constantine came up? He now said, we're going to make this world a Christian religion and we're now he kind of had that hatred in him and he said now we're going to start persecuting the Jews all these years it wasn't fair that they got to worship like they wanted to and us as Christians didn't and I just <sighs> yeah but the whole book of Hebrews whoever wrote it they were writing to the Jews uh -huh. to switch over to not have these old Jewish have some of those Jewish laws. Yeah. So it almost seems like some of it, you, you think they would have got well, some... see, what happened was, when Hebrews was written, uh -huh. it was written to the Hebrews, the Jews. Right. Um, at that time, they were being uh, starting to be persecuted as Christians. Mm -hmm. So some of the get-togethers were like, like Christians and Jews. But the Jews also went to the temple because that way they wouldn't get persecuted. Oh. The Christians were like in the upper rooms, and they, and they, got they were kind of got persecuted. So they wrote Hebrews, whoever wrote it, they don't know for sure. Right. To try to get the Hebrews to see that the you need to drop these some of the goings temple goings and, yeah. and try to do it. Yeah. But you could see kind of where maybe where some of the jealousy and some of that came up yeah. with that. And that's interesting. I, I got to look into that about the Hebrews about that there. And, I, and, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, thanks for that, Mary. I, let me, let me, it's fun. I can run home and, and, and I got all day to check this stuff tomorrow. So I'm, I'm going to look into that there. Thanks for that. <laughs> the antichism uh, of the early church towards the Jews was reflected in the writings of the early church fathers. For example, Justin Martyr in AD 160, which uh, Constantine was in 300, um, in speaking to the Jews, said the scriptures are not yours, but ours. So that was kind of the first idea there where Justin Martyr came up and said, now the scriptures are now the, now the Gentiles. They're not, they're not Jewish anymore. Our scriptures are now for us. So you kind of see that little uh, thought coming up there a little bit. And then uh, Irenaeus, Bishop of Lynn, in AD 177, declared, Jews are disinherited from the grace of God. So you see that antithetism coming up there a little bit. Tertullian, which we quote A.D. 160 to 230 in his treatise against the Jews, announced that God had rejected the Jews in favor 
of the Christians. And I, I guess when you start hearing some of our, our um, early um, teachers that we like to quote a lot, you know, kind of make comments about the Jewish nation like that, we, we, it's, it's kind of understandable why a lot of people say, well, yeah, replacement theology has been something that's been around for a long time. You're now coming up with a new thought, and, and you're going to have that. And, 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 and you're right, ever since Constantine and our early 100s, A.D. 100, 200, the church was kind of a replacement theology type, type of uh, a church. But uh, I, I, I don't think we need to be intimidated by that because I, I think as we see some of the reasoning why this became popular, it looked like it was almost a, a jealousy. It was almost an uh, anti-Semitism that came up and, and, and it culminated up to um, even what Hitler did, which we'll be talking about later. At the beginning of the 4th century, a mon monumental event occurred for the church which placed the church triumphant over vanquished Israel. In A.D. 306, Constantine became the Christian Roman emperor. At first, he had a rather pluralistic view and accorded the Jews the same religious rights as Christians. So it seems like Constantine had a somewhat of a favorable view of the Jews in early on in his uh, reign. However, in A.D. 321, that was uh, history students. What happened in A.D. 321? Any freshmen in here? John, did you teach any of them? What happened in A.D. 321? Jordan, what happened in AD 321? Isn't that when the, uh, and what do they call it, the Council of Nisus came together? Yeah, Council of Nisus. He made Christianity the official religion of the empire to the exclusion of all other religions. This signaled the end of the persecution of Christians, but the beginning of discrimination and persecution of the Jewish people. So, you know, we go back there and think that's kind of a great time in history, but I think we've got to watch ourselves. I, I, I don't think we realize how much of Constantine's concepts um, the church is still okay with, but I, I, I think he's done almost more damage to the, <laughs> to the Christian church. I mean, some of the things he came up with, some of the holidays he made, and some of the things that happened, I, 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 I think Constantine. And, and now you look at you know this whole thing of, of politics and trying to make our, our nation a Christian nation again, and, 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 and you look where where the, the leading of Constantine and becoming and making this world a Christian nation has, did not help our world at all. In fact, uh, we would have been better off if uh, a lot of those things wouldn't have, would have happened. Imperial Rome in AD 313 issued the Edict of Milan, which granted favor to Christianity while outlawing synagogues. Then in AD 315, another edict allowed the burning of Jews if they were convicted of breaking the laws. As Christianity was becoming the religion of the state, other laws were passed against the Jews. That's sad. I mean, imagine the Christian church is starting to burn Jews, is outlawing their synagogues. I mean, all under the uh, thing of saying that uh, Christian religion needs to be accepted and everybody needs to follow it. And in doing that, I mean, and we know that as a reformation, uh, reformation Brothers, how, uh, how in, in our persecution came from the church, too. But it all started here. And I think Constantine was a, uh, started a lot of those ideas. Yeah, Mary. To us. To the spiritual I know. But I think the scary part about it, Mary, is that uh, how many of the Christians, uh, uh, so-called Christians in our nation now, are, are kind of acting the same way? I mean, we, we look at, at some of our... Christian leaders that are trying to make, and, and I think it's nice that the United States is mostly Christian, but it seems like they want to, we got to 
they want to push, make us a Christian nation, and uh, and they would want to make a, a world based on Christianity again, and 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 that's good to a certain extent. But I, I think if we would, you know, there's a lot of Christians that if they would have the uh, could make this world a Christian world, they would do that. But it is not a Christian world. I, I don't think we need to be involved in leadership like Constantine was. And, and you're right. There's a lot of the true church. It's not like Constantine was. But I think the true church was such a minority at this time that that the false church of Constantine just, that's how people related them. And you can see, and I guess a lot of the reason I'm going through this is because you can see now why the Jewish people have such a, um, why they don't like the church, why they don't like Christians. I mean, Jesus, when I went to Israel the first time, I, I'm like, I love the nation of Israel. I love Jewish people. But over there, Jews have this impression that uses as, as Christians have persecuted and have burned us at the stake and have done evil stuff to us. We, we don't like the Christians. And, and I, I don't get it because I, since I was born, I always loved the nation of Israel. I thought it was great. But if I, as I went through a lot of these things and the comments that so-called Christians made, I understand why the Jewish people um, have their feelings against the, the, uh, the, ch- uh, the church. And, and not not right because there's the true church, right? And then there's a lot of those that are the so-called church. But ancient privileges in that time granted to the Jews were withdrawn. Rabbinical jurisdiction was abolished or severely curtailed. Proselytism to Jews, Judaism was prohibited and made punishable by death. This is from the time of Constantine. Jews were excluded from holding high office or military career. These and other restrictions were confirmed over and over again by various church councils for the next 1,000 years. And in AD 321, Constantine decreed all business should cease on the honored day of the sun by substituting Sunday for Saturday as the day of Christian worship. He further advanced the split. The Jewish Shabbat, Christian Sunday controversy also came up at the first real economical council of Nisa, AD 325, which concluded Sunday to be the Christian day of rest, although it was debated long after that. So, you know, I'm not sure exactly when when Sunday and, and uh, Sabbath was changed there, but uh, according to this, this might have been a Jewish person that Clarence Wagner wrote this. Um, it sounds like Constantine, in a sense, might have made Sunday um, the day of Christian worship, maybe somewhat in spite of the Jewish Sabbath. I'm, I'm not sure about that. Overnight, Christianity was given the power of the imperial state, and emperors began to translate the concepts and claims of the Christian theologians against the Jews and Judaism into practice. Instead of the church taking this opportunity to spread the gospel message in love, it truly became the church triumphant, ready to vanquish its foes. And uh, that, that, that whole thing, exactly right, they, they, they miss Romans 12, where it says we're supposed to be nice to those that we... Uh, uh, to that aren't nice to us, and, and, and they miss the whole thing of love, and it is now the church triumph, and we're going to win the battles throughout with the crusades, and we're going to change this whole world into Christian uh, Christian religion, and we're going to conquer everybody and force them to believe like Christians, and uh, it, it was not a very um, good example of Matthew 5. After 320, uh, 321, the writings of the church fathers changed in character. No longer was it on the defense of an apologetic, but aggressive, directing its venom at everyone outside the flock, in particular the Jewish people who could be found in almost every community and nation during this period. We find more examples of anti-Jewish bias in Christian literature written by church leaders. And then there's some more of those examples. 
in the 15th century, the burning question was, if the Jews and Judaism was cursed by God, then how can you explain their existence? And so the whole idea, you know, the Jewish people are cursed by God, and, and they said, we'll take on his blood. So now the question is, well, should we keep the Jewish people around? And who else thought that? Hitler, right? See how some of this is bred in the church, and this whole thought was drug along. Augustine tackled the issue in the Sermon Against the Jews. He asserted that even the Jews deserve the most severe punishment for having put Jesus to death. They have been kept alive by divine providence to serve together with their scriptures as witness to the truth of Christianity. Their existence is father justified by the service they rendered in the Christian truth and attesting through their humiliation the triumph of church over the synagogue. They were to be a witness people, slaves and servants who should be humble. Augustine, we, we quote him quite often, said they should be slaves and servants who should be humble. That's what he thought of the nature of the Jewish nation. This is an interesting one here. The monarchs in the Holy Roman Empire thus regarded the Jews as serfs of the chamber and utilized them as slave li librarians to maintain Hebrew writings. They also utilized the service of Jews in another enterprise of usury. So what they did is, is since they thought, they used to think in the early church that it's wrong to loan money to each other. And so they said, uh, we're going to use the Jews. You know, we can loan money to the Jews or, or loan to them and, and, and loan back and, and invest in them and they, because they're bad people. So we're allowed to loan them money, but we're not allowed to loan within our own people. And so this became kind of a neat thing. For, I mean, the thing that the Jewish people did, they were kind of like the banks to the world. And... Now, guess what? The Federal Reserve System and the Jewish people are still what accused of being the bankers of the world, right? And they were kind of forced into being the bankers of the world way back in the early, early was this 500 AD, 600 AD, and, and ever since that, they are still considered our bankers in the world, but we did it to them because we didn't think it's right, you know, it's not right for me to loan money to mom because Christians don't do that. But if I want to loan some money, I can get to a Jewish person because they're bad people anyhow. I can get money from them. And so that's, that's they said ever since that Jewish people have been kind of like the top bankers and, and, and done well with money. And that's kind of because of being pushed back. And I thought that was kind of interesting there. The results of these anti-Jewish teachings continued onward throughout church history, manifesting itself and such events and actions as the Crusades. It was horrible, the Crusades, the amount of people that were killed there. And the accusation of communion, host, desecration, and blood libel by the Jews. They started forcing them to wear distinguishing marks to ostracize them. So even the Christians, so-called Christians, were already starting to force Jews to wear distinguishing clothes so that we would know they're Jews. Who else did that? Hitler, Hitler yeah. This is... A lot of these habits were done by so-called Christians in, in, in the times of Crusades, and, and you look at you know you look at how horrible Hitler was in, in our day. You don't remember Hitler, Dad, but Hitler was around when you were born. That's that's not that far away, you know. And he used some of these horrible things that were kind of ideas that were invented by the by the so-called Church of those days, and he would. Uh, the Inquisition, which is a horrible time of killing a bunch of Jews, the displacement of whole Jewish communities by exiles. They made separate ghettos. Hitler did that too. He put all the Jewish right in separate ghettos. You know, you all go in one area. This was all started by people of so-called the church, the destruction of synagogues and Jewish books, physical persecution and execution, the pogroms, 
ultimately the seeds of destruction grew to epic portions, culminating in the Holocaust, which occurred where? Christian Europe. Europe was being taken Christian at the time. In fact, I got a whole five, six pages here of five myths about Mennonites and the Holocaust. Now, the Mennonites actually were okay with the Holocaust. Unbelievable. You know, that's how, how close is that? We, we would say that we, in our day, we would never do something as horrible as allowing Hitler to get rid of the Jews. But there's pictures here of Mennonite ladies in their Mennonite veils inside Nazi soldiers. Right? You know, we, we said we didn't do it. I mean, there was really, really, by the time that Holocaust came, there was nobody that really supported the Jews. I mean, the whole world was really, really against them. And the sad part about it is, how did the church get to the point where we hated the Jews that much that we were okay with seeing Hitler get rid of six million Jews? Wow. And I don't know if it's all from this whole idea of replacement theology, but that, that's, that's kind of I'm coming from. I mean, there was there was an, an awful hatred. Even even Martin Luther made some horrible comments about the Jewish nation. Um, I think I have some of those here a little bit later. Later, I don't know if I have any of Martin Luther's comments, but but he, even his he he liked the Jews at first, but till he was done, he he was in fact Hitler himself quoted comments that Martin Luther made against the the uh, Jewish people. And so it, it's, yeah, how our, our Christian forefathers, even people of the Reformation, got to the point where they were okay with the annihilation of Jews. And, and so we, we, we see how, as I took my trip over to Israel, I, I can now, you know, I, I didn't get it why the people of the nation of Israel hated us Christians. You know, I thought, oh, I'm going to go there on a Christian tour. They're all going to think, you know, we love Jewish people. They were going to really take us with open hands. But no, they kind of were standoffish to us, and, and I, I see as I'm going through that, and it's sad to think that a lot of those ideas were developed actually from the um, <coughs> replacement theology um, thinking in our um, Christian forefathers, and Mary's probably right, they probably really weren't Christian forefathers. That's right, and I, I think one of the, but you know, like I said, Mary, I, I wish we could say the Anabaptists were completely free of it. <laughs> But, you know, the Mennonites and their associations with, with Hitler, I'm not sure that they were completely free of it. But I, I, you're right. I, I think we were, hopefully, we, we had a better, we didn't hate people to the point that the rest of the church did because of our belief of, of loving even those that went against us. And, 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 I, and, I, and I, I'm, I, I know the Jews aren't easy to like. And, and Amos Kaufman made the quote. He said, if, if I wouldn't know what God has for the nation of Israel, I would have a hard time loving my Jewish brothers too. They are brass. They are not mannerly. They are <laughs> tough to get along with. Right, Lena? You, you have some Jewish people. They're not the nicest people to have at your house always. Um, they, they, are, they are difficult, but I, I think, but even with that, and, and we still have Jewish comments we make with that, I, I, I think we do have to watch our comments that we make towards the Jewish nation because our God still has a special heart for the Jewish people. And because God loves the Jewish people, we should too, right? Right? I don't have a bunch of time left. I want to go to some of the reasons on what God has for the nation of Israel. 
Let's turn to, like I said before, there's 77 references in the New Testament um, referring to the, the nation of Israel. Uh, Romans chapter 9. I, I, let me just read down over that. And I, I just, I think Jesus just so clearly, um, yeah, I, I don't see where the replacement theology of thinking comes when you read Romans 9 because I think he makes it so clear there. Romans 10.1 says, prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. How can someone in the church get saved again? You know, if, if you want to say that the church is for Israel, and, and these are the quotes from Romans 10.1. We're close there in Romans, uh, Romans 10. My heart and desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. It would seem a little strange there if you say, Brother, my heart desire and prayer to God for the church is that the church might be saved. Well, if you're in the church, you can't get saved twice, right? So I, I don't see how people can take Israel out and replace it with the church. It just, just doesn't fit. Romans 9, let, I'm going to read some of the highlights there since I don't have time to read all of it. Um, reading in verse 4, I'm going to read in the NIV. Um, Romans 9, 4, going down to verse 6. Um, I may, may make some comments as I'm reading here. Uh, people of Israel, heirs is adoptions as sons, heirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Right? We, we know Jesus Christ was, was, uh, was Jewish. And it's obvious he's talking about the Jewish people here. Who is God over all? Forever praised. Amen. Verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You know, God didn't mess up. It's not that God messed up and had to, you know, I think what he's saying here, and had to come up with the church because Israel didn't listen, you know. Some people think, well, Israel was so bad, I just didn't listen, and I tried, I don't know how many times, I kept going back to idols and all that, and Jesus got so frustrated with Israel, he said, I'm just going to eliminate them, and I'm going to see if I can make it work through the church. You know, God doesn't get frustrated, God doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> he knew Israel was going to be like that, he knew they were going to make mistakes, he didn't need the church to replace Israel because they're so bad. It's, this is just part of his story, right? It's part of God's story of how he's going to, again, use Israel sometime. Then in uh, verse 16, he does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You know, I, this is some of the problem I have with replacement theology is, is people say, well, the nation of Israel don't deserve salvation. Look how bad they are. Look at all the things they crucified our Savior. Is there anybody in here that deserves salvation? None of us, right? So how can we say that the nation of Israel don't deserve it? Or are we saying I deserve it? Because I became part of the church, I deserve salvation. And some people are saying, oh, God can't save the nation of Israel. They don't deserve it. They've been so bad. Well, neither do I. That just doesn't sound right to me when you can say that, the nation, that, that I deserve salvation, but the nation of Israel doesn't. It, it's all about mercy, right? God says it does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. If I want to save the nation of Israel, God is saying, I'm allowed. Right? He's allowed to do that. Well, why, why do we have a problem with that? Going to verse 25. This is a quote out of Hosea. And as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. In other words, I'm still going to call my people even though they don't act like my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. I'm, I'm still going to call them love my loved ones. I'm still going to call them my people, 
even though they went against me, didn't act like it, I'm still going to call them that. They're still my people. And I think these mothers do that, right? You have children that go astray, and sometimes you're like, that's not really my child, but we would never say it's not my child either. It's still our child, even though they make mistakes. And I think Jesus is saying that about the nation, is they made many mistakes. Yes, they have served idols, and they're rejecting me at this time, but they are still my people. I still love them, but you can't take that away from me. They're my children. In chapter 11, let me read. This is really the one that talks a lot about it. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means, no. I'm an Israelite myself, Paul is saying, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against, uh, appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. Am I the only one left and they are trying to kill me? And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And that remnant is not the church. Some people want to put themselves in here. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. They don't deserve it. I, I, I decided to save them. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor and eyes so they could not see, and ears so they could not hear as it, to this very day. So in a sense, God is hardening the nation of Israel right now so they can't hear. He's got them in, an, in a sense of stupor. I mean, you look at the nation of Israel, they are in a sense of stupor. I mean, why don't they recognize the Messiah? I mean, God saved them, made them a nation in 48. And David saved my... May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. And again I say in verse 11, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. The nation of Israel did not stumble beyond recovery. Not at all. Of course not. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. You know, how can you, how, the Gentiles is the church, right? Us. God, to what? Make Israel envious. The, the church is, Israel is supposed to now see us as church. We're supposed to be making the, the nation of Israel jealous. You know, nation of Israel, don't, we have a special relationship with God. Don't you want to come back to the Messiah? Aren't you, we're supposed to make them jealous. That's what, that's what God put the church here for now. But he's still going to do something for the nation of Israel. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches Will their fullness bring? How much greater is it going to be when God will someday save the nation of Israel? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You know, how can this be talking to the church? <laughs> this is obvious. You know, Israel's rejection is... For the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered to, as first fruit is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If not, if the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in. Who's you? Us, right? We've been grafted into this olive tree. Us as the church has been grafted into this olive tree, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. Who's the olive root? The nation of Israel. We have the privilege of, 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 of a Jewish savior. We are 
feeding off of that. So our, our roots are still Jewish, right? Our roots are still Jewish. Um, if some of the branches have been broken off, reading again 17, you through a wild olive shoot have been grafted in among the others, church been grafted in, now share of the nourishing sap from the olive root. Do not boast over those branches. And who are we as a church to say now we're better than the Jewish people? Well, we're just grafted in. We're actually not the real cherry tree or the olive tree. We're, we're, we're just grafted in. And we should just be thankful that God accepted us as Gentile people into his kingdom. He wouldn't have had to do that, but he did. He had mercy and allowed the gospel to be spread to us as Gentile people. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Yeah, some of the branches of the Israel nation have been broken off so that I can be grafted in. We should just be thankful for that. Um, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be ar arrogant, but be afraid, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And this is a warning to us as church. If we think we're arrogant, if we think we're a lot better than the nation of Israel, if we want to use this replacement theology and think we're better, God said, what, beware? That's arrogance, right? Beware? Beware? Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fail, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also, what's going to happen if you're not, if you're not going to be kind to the nation of Israel? You also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Isn't that an awesome God? He grafted the church into the olive tree, right? It's not hard for him to do that again. In fact, he will. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, how much easier is it going to be for God to be able to graft in the nation of Israel again? Easier than it was for the church. And then we want to say that God replaced the church with Israel? This is Romans. This is Acts of Christ's name. I, I don't see how you can read this any different than what I'm reading it. Verse 22, uh, 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part. Israel has experienced a hardening in heart, which is now. Israel is no doubt about it. The nation of Israel is somewhat not anti-God, but anti-Jesus. Has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, which is the church. That, that makes lots of sense to me. The hardening of the Jewish nation is, is happening now to the fullness, to the completion of the Gentile church. If you want to call it the Gentile church or the, the church in large. So that is completed. Once that is completed at the rapture right here, when the church is taken up, once that is completed, then God can what? Yeah, and so has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Are you the there? <laughs> no, we're the we, we're the church. We are, we are the Gentile church. When our time is up right here, the church of Jesus Christ, God will graft in again the Jewish nation. And I don't know who all those people were, but... As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. God said this is going to be my call is irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order 
that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. The last verse, God has even given us over to disobedience so that he can have mercy on us. Why can God not give, harden the hearts of the nation of Israel so that he can someday again have mercy on them at this time when he's going to come back to reign with his people and he's going to make everything right, the nation of Israel. We're probably going to be observing, I'm not exactly sure yet, I'm still looking at where we're going to be at um, and coming up with some ideas and kind of like there. But we are going to serve with Christ somewhere over here and he's going to again have mercy on the nation of Israel. And there is people in our churches, Beaches, Mennonites, Episcopalians, and, and that don't think God has a plan for the nation of Israel again. But I, I don't know. You have to spiritualize this in Romans 12 if you don't want to believe it. I, that, to me, if you believe that literally, I, I, I imagine the youngest person here would take that at face value and just believe it. That, But some people have to change that around to spiritualize it to make it apply to the church. Well, if I can spiritualize that chapter, don't I have the right, if my time's up, don't I have the right to spiritualize the virgin birth, the covering, and everything else? You see the danger when you start allowed to start spiritualizing chapters, and people, there's a lot of people in the replacement theology have a problem with those, those verses, and so they have to spiritualize it to make it fit with what they want. And, and, and once you start spiritualizing things, you're on a dangerous path. Thanks for your time. I hope I wasn't uh, too blunt always. I, I would love to... I didn't get to the point of talking about um, what God all has for the nation of Israel, so we, maybe we'll do that some more some of the other night. But tomorrow night, I think I'll start off about the, the uh, feasts, and I'm pretty excited about that. I, I'll tell you how, what God has done through the feasts, the pathetic scripture that is just a bunch of neat stories, so hopefully we'll have a lot of fun with that tomorrow. Thanks for your time.